This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. We're going to continue our study in the book of Jonah this week as we look to chapter 2. And you may recall last week that we considered Jonah chapter 1 where we were confronted with Jonah's sinful rebellion against God. We saw that Jonah, a prophet of God, who received and spoke the Word of God to the people of God, this Jonah disregarded and disobeyed God's Word when God had called him to go and speak a word of judgment to that Gentile nation of Nineveh. Jonah's sinful rebellion took him into the belly of a ship onto his way across the Mediterranean Sea to the port city of Tarshish. And it's there in verse 4 that we were confronted with the great providence of God when the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and caused the sea to strike fear and the great storm to strike fear in the hearts of the sailors on that ship. And so we considered last week in verses 4-10 through that God's providence rules over God's creation. That God's providence is meticulous, even reaching to the tiniest of details and the seeming chance in our life. And we consider that God's providence is personal. God's providence is not an impersonal force at work in the world, but it is the very hand of God, directing and guiding, disposing and governing all of His creation, even each one of us. And so we consider that God's providence is guiding all things to that great and good end of God's salvation through judgment. And where we left off last week was that Jonah had been thrown into the raging sea of God's judgment. God had used even Jonah's sinful disobedience, however, to bring about salvation for these Gentile sailors. And now we come today to what may be the most well-known scene in the entire Old Testament. Jonah chapter 1, verse 17 through the end of Jonah chapter 2, verse 10. And so hear God's word this morning from Jonah. Chapter 1, verse 17, all the way through Jonah 2, verse 10. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple." The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet, You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to You and to Your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. 
And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Amen. May God bless the reading of His Word. We're going to consider these 11 verses this morning in two sections. And the two sections don't easily break out into uh, chapter and verse divisions. But these are two main sections that we'll consider these 11 verses this morning. The God who saves and the Jonah who prays. The God who saves and the Jonah who prays. We see in these verses, and especially in verses 117 and 210, that God brings about salvation from beginning to end. It is God who brings about salvation from beginning to end. So we see the God who saves. And we see in verses 2, 1 through 9, that Jonah prayed. Jonah prayed. He prayed a prayer of confession and thanksgiving to the Lord. And he declared for us in in verse 9 that salvation belongs to the Lord. And so let's take a moment now, like Jonah, and pray. Let's pray to God and ask God to help us as we consider His Word. Let's pray. To you who sits upon the throne, be blessing and honor and glory and power forever and forever. And so we come now to Your Word, O God, and we pray that You would be with us by Your Holy Spirit, that we might behold and believe wonderful things from Your Word. Conform us now to the image of Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's consider the God who saves. You know, I've titled this sermon... That which is the main point of the sermon. And that we find in verse 9 of chapter 2. Salvation belongs to the Lord. These verses before us this morning, they break up the narrative of chapter 1 and chapter 3. There's something of like an interruption in this story of God and Jonah. They break in and, and to show us that salvation belongs to the Lord. Chapter 1 taught us that our disobedience to God results in judgment from God. And it's in these verses that we are confronted with the reality that our disobedience to God leads to our disability to save ourselves from God. Jonah was cast into the sea of God's judgment. He was unable to save himself from God's judgment. Jonah needed God to save him. And these verses teach us that we also need God to save us. And the good news is that in these verses, we encounter the God who saves. And if any of us are tempted to focus on Jonah in particular in this story, or to focus our attention on the great fish in this story, we will lose sight of the great God revealed to us in this story. But let me go ahead and just address the 800-pound great fish in the room. I believe that a great fish actually swallowed Jonah the prophet, just as the text says. The New Testament, Jesus Himself in Matthew chapter 12, cites this event as an historical event. And it's presented to us here as part of the narrative. Even if it's interrupting the narrative, it's presented to us as part of the narrative as an historical event. Admittedly, it's not an easily explained event. But friend, we can trust God's Word. We can trust God's Word. We ought to trust God's Word more than we trust our doubts. 
God's word is sure and true and perfect. And the great fish here, it was likely a sperm whale or some sort of similar fish that swallowed up Jonah. But in reality, this fish is barely even a character in the drama. The fish is God's fish. It is but the means that God appointed for Jonah's salvation. Even the structure of these verses before us, they're meant to drive home the point that God is the Savior from beginning, verse 117, to the end, verse 210. And I could go into some great discussion of why chapter 1, verse 17 seems to fit better in Jonah chapter 2, but I doubt that anyone really wants to hear that. But if you do have any actual questions about why I'm pairing 17 into chapter 2, I'd love to talk to you after the sermon. But the point here is that chapter 1, verse 17, and chapter 2, verse 10, they act as bookends to this prayer of Jonah. They act as bookends that drive home the point, it is God who acts. It is God who saves Jonah. These bookends are meant to tell us and show us that Jonah's prayer of 2, verses 1 through 9, they happen only in the context of God's salvation. To make clear to us, that salvation really does belong to the Lord. Look with me at verse 17. Verse 17, The Lord, Yahweh, appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. The same meticulous and personal providence that governed and directed in chapter 1, here, meticulously and personally appointed a great fish to save Jonah from judgment. In verse 3 of chapter 2, Jonah speaks of God's sovereign judgment. For you cast me into the sea, Jonah says. And isn't it peculiar that Jonah says that God casted him into the sea? But we read just last week that the sailors were the ones who hurled him into the sea. But Jonah knows the truth that God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. So that God was the one ultimately who threw Jonah into the sea. Jonah says, all of your waves and your billows passed over me. Friends, you need to know that this is God's world and we are just living in it. God is the author of life. God is the author of your life and so has the freedom and the authority to judge the sin in your life, and to save sinners like you and me. And friends, you must understand yourself in relation to God, or you will not understand yourself at all. Jonah, here in chapter 2, presents his condition under God's judgment as good as dead, verses 4 and 5 and 6. He says his life is fainting away, verse 7. And friend, you need to know that this is not just Jonah's condition in this particular story. This is your spiritual condition in your spiritual, in your particular story. This is the spiritual condition of every one of us, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, that we are all by nature children of God's judgment, just as Jonah was here in Jonah 2. Our disobedience to God has resulted in our judgment from God. We need God to save us from God. And the good news is that God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved Jonah, made Jonah alive. God saved Jonah and God can save you too. 
God worked all things together for Jonah's salvation, even to the point of appointing a fish to swallow him up. God worked not only for the end, salvation, but through means to bring about Jonah's salvation. So that in chapter 2, verse 10, the Lord spoke and the fish did what the Lord commanded. He he deposited Jonah back onto the dry land. God saved Jonah from the waters of God's Judgment, And it's with a confident declaration in verse 9 that Jonah tells us what we all need to hear. Jonah spoke hope. He speaks hope even now to the soul who despairs under the crashing waves of hopelessness. How many of us have felt the weight of our sin and have been hopeless or felt hopeless in the midst of of our sin and in the midst of God's discipline and judgment upon us. And Jonah speaks a word of hope to us. He speaks comfort to the soul who is afflicted by the hurling winds of this life. Jonah speaks life to the soul who knows that it is drowned under the sea of God's judgment when Jonah declares in verse 9, salvation belongs To the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And we need salvation to belong to the Lord. We need it. Because if salvation belonged to you or to me or to Jonah, we would be in the belly of Sheol, in the depths of hell. Our life would faint away unless salvation belongs to the Lord. And as it is, just as with Jonah, God appoints And God accomplishes. And God applies His salvation. Christian, brothers and sisters, what gratitude we owe to God our Savior who has blessed us in Jesus Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us, He elected us in Him before the foundation of the world. Or as Charles Spurgeon put it, salvation is older than creation. In love, this God predestined us for adoption unto Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. And so Charles Spurgeon, when he was preaching on Jonah 2, made this comment. He said, God devised the plan of salvation because without God, it could not have been devised. It is a plan too splendid to have been the product of any mind except that mind by which he would carry it out afterward. No one has helped to provide salvation. God has done it all himself. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And listen, it will be no surprise to most of you, I love the doctrine of God's sovereignty, particularly God's sovereignty in salvation. It's taught so plainly in the Bible. But so many of us may get a little uneasy. We may want to soften or equivocate on the matter. And so loved ones, let me encourage you, don't do it. We must take God at His word. And if God is to be God, then God is to be sovereign. Some of us may affirm the doctrine. We may not really care about the doctrine. We may be rather ambivalent towards it. We'll affirm it because we kind of have to. 
and we see no practical benefit in it. What does it really matter to have these theological discussions? How many angels can dance on the head of a pen? We see no practical benefit of it, but we must get on. Some of you think we must just get on with the work of ministry. We must be busy doing things rather than trying to understand and discern the mysteries of God. Well, friend, that's a rather faithless claim. For we know that God does all things with purpose. And so there must be purposeful effect for God to so plainly reveal His sovereignty to us. Brothers and sisters, there are many practical effects of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, particularly in salvation. And I want to highlight just two of them from our text this morning. We see that the doctrine of God's sovereignty humbles the proud and strengthens the weak. God's sovereignty humbles the proud and strengthens the weak. We see that in our text this morning, we see how humiliated, how humiliated must proud Jonah be to be sitting in the belly of a great fish. This fish that was appointed by God to save this prophet of God from God's judgment. This proud prophet of the Lord who thought that he could flee from the presence of God, who slept through the providential storm of God's judgment. This proud prophet humbled by the appointment of God in the belly of a great fish. I wonder how many of us have sensed the humbling hand of Almighty God in our lives. How many of us, like Jonah, would confess and give thanks to God for His sovereign humiliation that brought us to the Lord Jesus Christ? How many of us still need the doctrine of the sovereignty of God to humble us from our proud estate? There was nothing that Jonah could do to save himself in that sea. And unless we are saved in humility, then we will certainly perish in pride. But we also see not just that God's sovereignty humbles the proud, we also see that God's sovereignty, it upholds the weak. We see that even in Jonah. Jonah, this humbled prophet of the Lord sitting in the belly of the fish, he cries out to God in repentance and thanksgiving. This Jonah was delivered up onto dry land. And in chapter 3, verse 1, which we'll get to at some point over the summer, this Jonah was given a recommission from God. This sovereign God acted upon weak and helpless Jonah for God's good purposes for Jonah. And the same God who acted sovereignly to humble the proud and acts even now sovereignly to humble the proud is the same God who sovereignly upholds the lowly in heart. Loved one, if you know that God is the sovereign and you love this sovereign God, you never need to fear or to worry. You need not fear or worry that this sovereign God will leave you or forsake you? Can the sovereign God, the creator of everyone and of everything, the God who works all things according to the counsel of His own will for the good of those who love Him, this sovereign God who predestines and calls and justifies and glorifies, 
Will this sovereign God not fulfill all of his promises that are yes and amen in Jesus Christ? Let God be true and every man a liar. God cannot deny himself. God will do exactly as he has promised and his sovereign strong promises will uphold our weak and weary hearts. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God appointed that great fish to miraculously save Jonah. But the real miraculous work of God took place not in the belly of the great fish, but it took place in the heart of the prophet. God's sovereign miracle happened not only in the realm of nature, but it also happened in the realm of grace in Jonah's heart. And what was Jonah's response to God's sovereign grace? Jonah prayed. Jonah prayed. So now let's consider Jonah's prayer in Jonah chapter 2. Look with me at God's Word. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of that fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Where in Jonah chapter 1, Jonah fled from God's presence, now in Jonah chapter 2, he flees to God's presence in prayer. Where Jonah had disregarded and disobeyed God's word in chapter 1 and chapter 2, Jonah recites God's word in prayer. This section of Jonah, bookended by God's free and sovereign action, it shows us that Jonah's prayer is the only appropriate response from the sovereign's subject. Jonah's prayer is a, a model prayer. It's a prayer that is evidence of the fact that when the Word of God is in your heart and mind, as surely it was with Jonah, you can't help but pray to God with the Word of God on your lips. Loved ones, be like Jonah. Be like Jonah. Pray the Scriptures. So many of us don't know what we ought to pray. So many of us struggle in prayer. So many of us don't pray. Well, let us be so immersed in the Word of God that when we pray to God, we can't help but think and speak the Word of God back to Him. Jonah here, he sounds like King David when David was delivered from Saul in Psalm 18. David wrote, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and He answered me. And most of Jonah's prayer here in chapter 2 is in one way or another a restatement of a psalm. 
If any of you have, uh, uh, have references in your Bible or cross-sections, cross-references in your Bible, you'll see the cross-references are almost entirely of psalms. Jonah here is simply reciting psalms back to God in prayer, organized in his particular circumstance, but he's just reciting psalms back to God in prayer. Jonah's prayer is beautiful psalm and beautiful poetry. And it happens to be organized in a chiastic structure. If Travis were here, his heart would have just burst with joy because I said chiasm or chiastic structure. But it's true. It's there in the text. Jonah chapter 2, this prayer, is a, it's a chiastic structure. And that really just means, think of, think, of the, uh, think of the greater than sign. It means there's parallel verses that draw our attention to one particular verse. And that happens here. It's meant to focus our attention on the reality that God's judgment is compatible with God's mercy. That God the Sovereign is also a Father God who cares for His children. So in verses 2 and 6, Jonah calls out to the Lord. That's the, that's the parallel there. Jonah calls out to the Lord. Jonah's cry to the Lord takes place in the context of God's salvation. Jonah cried out to God in the midst of his weakness and despair and his helplessness, and God saved Jonah. And for some of us, maybe even for most of us, that is the time when we most perceive God's work in our lives. When we are weak, and despairing and hopeless. And for many, it will be at the end of yourself, at God's appointed time, at the end of yourself, where you will find the Lord. 19 years ago, next month, I found myself in an apartment in College Station, Texas, under heavy conviction by the Holy Spirit for my sinful rebellion. And it was simply reading Matthew, simply reading the Gospel of Matthew, that I called out to the Lord. And the Lord did for me what He did for Jonah. The Lord answered Jonah's prayer. And He brought him from the pit. Verse 6. And the Lord did the same for me. And how many testimonies of answered prayer just like this do we have in this room? Christian. Christian. Brothers and sisters in Christ. You are a walking testimony that God answers prayers when we call to Him. You wouldn't be a Christian any other way. God answers our prayers when we call to Him. Well, we see in verses two through six that Jonah, two, two and six that Jonah calls out to God. We see in verses three and five that Jonah confesses God's judgment for his sin is right. If we are to be saved by God, then we must acknowledge and agree with God's judgment against our sin. And so friend, friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you must know yourself to be a sinner if you will ever know Jesus Christ to be your Savior. And friend, if you do know yourself to be a sinner, then call out to God even now to save you from your sin through faith in Jesus Christ. Ask God to give you faith in the Lord Jesus who came into the world to save sinners like you and me. And finally, the chiastic prayer focuses us on verse 4. Where Jonah confesses, then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. He's again acknowledging and confessing God's judgment is right. Yet, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The judgment of being driven away from God in this momentary act of divine discipline was not without hope. 
Jonah would again commune with God in his holy temple. We must always present the bad news with the good news. The bad news that we are by nature children of wrath, that we are rebellious sinners like Jonah, that we are unable to save ourselves from God's judgment. But we see in Jonah's prayer that God's judgment is laced with God's mercy. The good news that we may be reconciled to God, that we may fully commune with God through faithful union to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is Himself the fullness of God, who is Himself the very meeting place of God and man. Jonah in the belly of this fish, he longed for communion with God in his holy temple. Yet brothers and sisters, how much greater is our communion with the Lord by His Holy Spirit. And the sovereign Lord is building His temple, the church, even today by sovereignly adding to the church each and every one of God's elect. And so let us pray. Let us pray like Jonah that all the fullness of God's elect will be brought into His church, the temple of God, so that we all, that we all might with one heart and with one spirit, enjoy a foretaste of our heavenly communion that is to come. Have you ever considered that the point of evangelism is to bring into God's church all of God's elect so that we can be built up together in love in full communion with one another as we commune with the Lord Jesus Christ? And that in heaven, all of God's people will be gathered around the throne fully and faithfully and joyfully communing with God and with each other. Let us labor to make that a reality here. That we would labor to joyfully commune together, even as we reach out to a lost and dying world with the great assurance that salvation belongs to the Lord and He will bring about all of His elect into His church. Let us have great courage as we go about the task of evangelism and missions. Our aim is that we might have full and joyful communion with God just as Jonah prayed here. Jonah ends his prayer with thanksgiving to God for so great a salvation. And isn't that the only righteous response from a sinner saint who recognizes that their only hope comes from the Lord? Well, this account of Jonah in the belly of the great fish it's perplexing, I admit that. For some of you, it may even be unbelievable. But brothers and sisters in Christ, we know, we know that God does even more amazing acts than this. God not only sovereignly caused the great fish to be the means of salvation for Jonah, but He appointed our great enemy, death itself, to be the means of salvation for His people through the death of Jesus Christ. God not only caused a great fish to spit out Jonah onto dry land, but He loosed the grip of death from His beloved and raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Brothers and sisters, Jonah 2 teaches us that our disability to save ourselves is remedied only by God's ability to use any means necessary to save us from our sin. And Jonah 2 teaches us that the only proper response to that great salvation is prayerful communion with God in His holy temple, the church. And so be encouraged, dear saint. 
be encouraged that should the Lord tarry, the people of God will, each and every Lord's Day, gather around the Word of God to worship and commune with God through His Son and by His Spirit until we're with God in glory. And in the meantime, until that day, if we die in Christ, God will call forth His beloved from the grave, just like He did with Jonah, just like He did with Jesus. Brothers and sisters, your body may lay in the belly of the earth for a time, but loved ones, on that great day, the Lord will speak and your resurrection bodies will be like unto His glorious body. To quote the old Puritan Thomas Watson, we are more sure to rise from our graves than to get out of our beds. So praise God that salvation from first to last belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for your holy, inspired, true, and inerrant word. You present to us things that challenge our understanding. And yet, as a father who teaches his child, you show us how great you are, how kind you are, how loving you are, how good you are to those who fear you, to those who love you. God, we praise You that Your Word from first to last teaches us that salvation belongs to You and You alone. And so we come to You now. We pray that You would work about salvation for those here who are not saved. We pray that they would call out to You in the midst of their sin and despair and that they would find salvation in Jesus Christ alone. God, we pray that we would be a church that labors to joyfully commune with You and with each other, week in and week out, until we are with you in glory, where we will commune with you with no sin, with no tears, with no death, but with joy everlasting. And we pray, God, that you would encourage us with these words until you come. In Jesus' name, amen.